I'm fascinated by Trump because he is a classic Shakespearean character. The Dems scream death as O'Kan dies. It's almost Shakespearean. You're absolutely right, Joe. You know, if you saw it in a play, you'd think that the playwright was sort of over-contriving this. The lady doth protest too much. Unless you're a star, then they let you do it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Today we're doing a little bit of Shakespeare cast. If you're interested in Trump, you are interested in Shakespeare. My guest today is going to be Stephen Greenblatt, who has a new book out called Tyrant Shakespeare on Politics. I am in the studio first, though, with Isaac Butler, Slate's own Isaac Butler, who has his own investigation into Shakespeare and politics called Lend Me Your Ears, a new Slate podcast. Welcome, Isaac. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as I've just been discussing with Isaac, you know, Shakespeare essentially invented the human, certainly had a feel for autocrats and tyrants, and uh, even has ideas about revolution, rebellion, coup, all the things that, you know, light us up. <laughs> um, why now? Like, how'd you have this idea to do this? Sure. So uh, I was teaching Shakespeare um, to college students in the fall of 2016 and, you know, just thinking about Shakespeare a lot and and because I love Shakespeare and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Shakespeare plays. And, you know, we were in the midst of studying one of his plays when the election happened. And I just, you know, was up all night. I think like a lot of people were sort of hoping at the last second one of the states would go the other way. Oh, you were some, you were the Michigan hanger on person. Michigan hanger on person. Well, it was really just that I couldn't sleep. You yeah. know? And they announced that that wasn't going to happen. Everyone called it for Trump. And then the total coincidence, but it was like 2.30 a.m. or something. And I was mm-hmm. on the couch and my 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 wife and my daughter were asleep. And someone around the corner fired a gun. There were just gunshots. And it was like this Shakespearean omen. You know, when a system is collapsing in Shakespeare, there's all these omens. In, in uh, Julius Caesar, a lioness gives birth in the middle of the street and graves open up and the dead come out of them and all this stuff. And it just felt like that. And I was just like, I, I don't know that I can talk about iambic pentameter tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that, like, what I don't even remember what my lesson plan was. But I threw it out and I just um, sat there trying to figure out what was I going to say to my students. Uh, But I was haunted by the fact that I didn't have an immediate answer. And so uh, I decided that I was going to figure out what the answer was like. And what I realized was at the time that I didn't know enough about I didn't feel like I knew enough about Shakespeare's own time and Mm. what politically he was responding to. Because the thing is that Shakespeare could not talk about contemporary politics in his plays. It was illegal. There was an official censorship regime. Every script that was going to be performed had to be read by a figure named the, called the Master of Revels who could recommend changes or actually forbid you from performing the play outright. So he was essentially, he had to subtweet. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. He couldn't tag Elizabeth Elizabeth I. Yeah, exactly. And so he, uh, so what he, Elizabeth I, yeah, exactly, at Elizabeth I. So, um, QE1 or something, right? So what he did instead was he, you know, reached into myth, into folk tales, into real stories from the distant or from at least a couple centuries ago or into ancient Rome, a lot into ancient Rome to figure out how to dramatize the political currents of his day. And I thought if I go and learn more about that, mm-hmm. I will this will become a lot clearer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it will provide a little bit of a break from pulling my hair out 
at every headline and tweet that I see. So how does it work? Do you do you interview uh, pundits? Do you interview <laughs> literary critics, like Shakespearean actors, directors? So there's two episodes per show, one of which is available to everyone and one of which is just for Slate Plus listeners. Yet, for the, yet another incentive to, to join Slate Plus. Yes, I mean, it's subscribe just, to Slate Plus. Yeah. Um, and the first episode, which your listeners will, will hear if they're so inclined, is narrated by me and it's me posing these questions, in this case about Julius Caesar, and then talking to literary critics historians and theater artists, just experts on these plays. People thought deeply about these plays to get their answers and mm-hmm. then trying to weave that into my own feelings about the play and my own feeling about our era and what we what we can learn from it. So in Julius Caesar, we're really triangulating the fall of the Roman Republic, which is one of the great stories in all of world history, the fall of the Roman Republic, what's going on in the 1590s in Elizabethan England mm-hmm. and what's going on right now. And it's sort of, you know, we're sort of triangulating those three things. So um, I, as I was saying before, my brother, Andrew Heffernan, is a Shakespearean actor. We just saw Anthony Cher do King Lear at, yeah. um, at BAM. And um, who do you think is the best figure for Trump? I mean, who, I I just don't know enough. I, I right. didn't know. I mean, he has a daughter so <laughs> who he adores, so maybe he's King Lear. He uh, is a tyrant, so maybe he's Richard. Um, you know, anyway, tell it, me. It's really hard, right? That was actually one of the struggles with this, is how much do you want to draw a direct metaphorical line? There are ways in which Trump is King Lear. He has children who jockey for position. Mm-hmm. He has a clear favorite. He has a clear favorite. <laughs> he wants his whims to be obeyed and gets infuriated when they are not. Not. Mm-hmm. Um, King Lear was a, at one point a mighty warlord. That is mm. a very big difference between the two. I mean, there's, these metaphors are always going to break down at some yeah. point, right? But in his impulsiveness and madness, you know, there's a yeah. way that a lot of people see Lear as a Trump figure. Another one, which, you know, I hadn't been thinking about, but actually in our other, our, our guest for today, Stephen Greenblatt's book, yeah. he talks about Jack Cade, who's a sort of yeah, who, um, who, fake populist figure in Henry VI Part Two. What a great populist starts name. This, uh, yeah, right? Who's, a, who's based on a real person. Person, ah. who starts this kind of um, peasant revolt. But Cade is like transparently a fraud and everyone knows that he's a fraud and mm. they follow him anyway and they sort of love him more for all the outrageous things he can get away with. What do you think of that comparison? Um, I think that one of the great mysteries of our time is why do uh, Jamel, Jamel Bowie was talking about this on Twitter. Why is there a certain subset of voter, actually rather large subset of voter, probably the kind of people that Hillary Clinton meant when she said basket of deplorables, right. smorgasbord of deplorables, you know, it's yeah, a yeah, smorgasbord yeah. of deplorables. There is a certain kind of people, the person that seems to deliberately want to vote for the worst possible right, person. The Joe Arpaio person. That, right. You have six choices. Right. And I'm going to vote for the grossest, most monstrous. one. So this is such a theme in Shakespeare and, you know, we're going to talk to Stephen Greenblatt yeah. a little bit about this, but the inversion, it's almost, you know, the Nietzschean inversion of platonic values totally. is that like ugliness becomes beauty, lies become truth, death becomes love or or fear supersedes love. I, I feel like so I worked one of the things I spent a lot of 2016 doing is working with the monologuist Mike Daisy on his show, The Trump Card. Oh, yes. Um, which uh, uh, Slate actually live streamed our final performance. Because you're a theater Hall. director by I training. Am, by training, yeah. And that was created and performed by him and directed by me. And something Mike said, uh, you know, I want to credit him for this. Yeah. He was way ahead of the curve on this. He said, there is a certain kind of person that at some point just goes, Fuck it. Let's roll the dice and burn it all down yeah, because that's yeah. got to be better. Than all right, we have then I'll go to on. hell. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I do think that there is this kind of death drive you get when that is a companion 
to hopelessness. Yes. And I think that's a really important thing that that Shakespeare is sort of pointing out because Shakespeare and I think we don't know that much about his life. Right. But I would hazard he gets it from the Roman sources that he's reading and that his mm. contemporaries are reading because mm. was sort of a literary fad for reading and translating Roman and Latin works is this this really clear understanding, which I hope we get to talk about with Stephen today, this really clear understanding of the relationship between kind of the societal environment and yeah. its institutions and how that creates the individual choices and what individuals do. So um, I find this, as you know, mesmerizing. And oh, I could you. sit here and ask you questions for hours. We do need to ask questions of our guest, um, Stephen Greenblatt, who is has also uh, written about Shakespeare and politics from a very different angle. If you, Trumpcast listeners, have enjoyed this conversation um, with Isaac Butler, you'll get much more of this with a much more expert interlocutor than I am. And uh, I really urge you to tune in to Lend Me Your Ears. Thank you. I'm still in the studio with Isaac Butler. Joining us on the line now is Stephen Greenblatt. He's the John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He was once my professor, so um, if I become meek and um, and eager for approval, and you all, and hopefully Stephen will um, forgive me. This gives you a very, a very inadequate and incorrect account of how students behave to their professors, but okay. <laughs> maybe maybe the 90s were different. You know, standards yeah, have fallen. Yeah, um, I'm going to let Isaac start. We both read your book, Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics, and uh, it, find it immensely stimulating. Um, Isaac. Yes. Hi, Stephen. So, uh, you know, I, I, I read the book um, a couple days ago on on, on a plane. And I, I loved it. I thought it was was really wonderful. And I was, you know, you... You mentioned at the end that you started thinking about this book during the you know election season, and then it kind of expanded from there. It's it's a very very timely look at Shakespeare's treatment of tyranny and the way systems and individuals at, at all levels of society respond to tyranny. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the genesis of the project and and what what led you to write this book. Well, I thought of about Shakespeare all my life, so it wasn't entirely occasional, right? But it is the case that not just for me, but I think actually for lots of us, when when things become a little overwhelming or preoccupying, obsessive, and I should certainly say on this program that there's a level of obsessiveness that this surrounds the current our current political life. Indeed, when the daily news, the scandals, the the noise, the voices become not become disorienting, that actually it, it certainly helps me, and I think it, it's probably not me alone. Not to give up completely, not to look away and go to a spa, as it were, but to, maybe that's also nice, uh, <laughs> but to look at things from a different angle, to take a step back, to take a deep breath, in this case, to go 400 years away to the arguably the most uh, intelligent, thoughtful, deepest person who thought a lot about how the societies fall into the hands of catastrophic leaders. So you use um, the word, the word tyrant is, is well, not only the name of your book, but the, the touchstone in the book for that kind of catastrophic leader. We don't use the word tyrant all that much to talk about Trump. People fall back on despot or autocrat or sometimes bully which is, you know, a word I, I dislike, but Isaac was just explaining to me that it evokes the playground in useful ways with this president. But but I want to ask you, what does the word tyrant, a word that was more or less banned in Elizabethan times, get us that those other words don't? It, it, first of all, it has a, tyrant has some interesting, complicated 
history is a term because it didn't have the associations that it acquired. It didn't originally have them in ancient Greece. I mean, a tyrant was a person who ruled, who came to power against the will of the oligarchical establishment, hmm. uh, who disrupted things that way and ruled often by popular demagoguery uh, or by violence against the established order of things. And then it acquired increasingly the sense of, of an illegitimate ruler. And that's why, in fact, starting at the, the time of Henry VIII, there, was a, there had been long debates, uh, actually going back almost to ancient times, about whether it was legitimate, whether it was legal to kill a tyrant. Hmm. And uh, there was widespread agreement, at least in some quarters, that yes, I mean, uh, uh, even though you, you were not supposed to raise your hand against a legitimate ruler, even a lousy one, you could actually kill a someone whom everyone recognized was a tyrant. And that's why, starting in the time of Queen Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, there was a law that said you could be executed if you called the, the ruler a tyrant. Ah, uh, because uh, it... So it, wasn't a, it was a highly charged term at the time. But fundamentally, I mean, there's two things to say. First of all, we all get that Donald Trump was elected. I mean, that he didn't come to power through assassination. We can call into question the nature of the election, what, how it worked, but that's a different matter. So it, it doesn't correspond to what all that the term meant in the 16th century, certainly, or early 17th century. That's a long time ago. But the idea is a tyrant was for the 16th century someone who ruled over, ruled over unwilling subjects. Mm-hmm. A king rules over willing subjects. A tyrant rules over unwilling subjects. And that definition was that a tyrant doesn't govern for the public interest, but governs for his or her own pleasure. Right. That's fascinating. You know, one thing that uh, I think we're starting to talk a little bit about in the public conversation is institutional rot, right? Like that, like the institutions are maybe, are they strong enough to contain a powerful leader who maybe wants to be a tyrant? Are they, Uh are they going to act as a check? Like how do institutional norms work and stuff like that? And that's something that Shakespeare thought really deeply about and that you, you document about in this book. Let me just say he thought not simply about rot, about that thing that happens when you go down to the basement of your house and you discover that the beams aren't what you thought they were. It's, but that usually happens over a long period of time. And that, he did think about that, but he also thought a lot about a different phenomenon, which I think is relevant to the current moment, which is that you think these things are solid. You think these institutional norms, the, uh, your procedures are guaranteed they've been around for a very long time. In our case, we have a very old republic, I mean, late 18th century, basically. And then you you discover that actually they can disappear almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare was interested in that phenomenon. The, the idea that the things that you think are actually going to hold you up, it's not that they necessarily are rotting from within. They actually have to be, that can be the case, but they also, they ha- someone has to stand up for them. Someone has to do it. Mm-hmm. If then you might you can have all the good laws and on the books and all the institutions that you want, but if they're not actually supported and enforced, they're gone. Habeas corpus, the right to have a phone call that the government is not listening in on, the idea that uh, you don't torture people in a civilized society, it it can turn out that that none of that's true. Mm-hmm. Not because it's rotting from within, because no one stands up at that moment to say no. And Shakespeare's interested in that very deeply interested in that phenomenon, whether it's fear or complicity, some secret sense that we'll get something out of this and we'll go along with it. 
also situations in which the person in power begins to behave irrationally and the system isn't set up to be able to deal with irrational behavior. Right, like in Lear where there sort of is no system other than the monarchy. Yeah, yeah. Lear or, or there is actually a court in The Winter's Tale, but the king is insane. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he's gone insane rather suddenly. And they can't figure out, basically, the institution's not set up to be able to deal with this. So um, one of the the regimes we've we talk about on this show, and I guess everyone talks about that's not the American one, is the Russian one. And what you just said makes me think of Marx, all that is solid melts into air. This is very much a Russian phenomenon. One thing Gary Kasparov, who's been on the show, has said about Putin, another tyrant, is that lying makes Putin seem strong. The norm of truth-telling is one of the things that has melted into air. And you talk a lot about this. I think you say, I'm going to quote you, uh, why in some circumstances does evidence of mendacity, crudeness, or cruelty serve not as a fatal disadvantage, but as an allure? Maybe you can say something about lying in particular um, as yes. a feature it, of tyranny. It, it, Shakespeare was fascinated by the fact the central tyrant figures in his in his imagination, in his historical imagination, basically everyone gets it. Everyone gets that they're lying. Mm. So the question is why, in that case, do people go along with it? He sees this in the case of, manifestly, overwhelmingly in the case of Richard III, but he sees it elsewhere. And he's fascinated by this, and he's fascinated by it partly, I think, truthfully, because, after all, he's a playwright. He's an artist. He's into fictions. Shakespeare could, if he didn't have a career as a great dramatist, could have had a career as a great demagogue. He knows exactly how to hmm. manipulate crowds. That's He's in the business of manipulating crowds. And what he discovered, I think, quite early is that manipulating crowds does not depend upon fooling them, tricking them into thinking that you're telling the truth. Something else is going on. And he sees that right away in an obscure play, obscure for most of your listeners, Henry VI, Part Two, in which he has this lower class rebellion, but actually it's a populist, fraudulent populist rebellion that's fraudulent because it's actually being organized by someone at the very top of society, but he's using a kind of tool, cat's paw named uh, Jack Cade. And everyone in the mob knows that Jack Cade is totally bullshitting. He doesn't have the social background he, he claims to have. He claims to be an aristocrat. They know that's not the case. They know that his his promises about, you know, abolishing money, everyone drinking on his tab, as he puts it, mm-hmm. uh, making it a felony to drink small beer. Everyone gets that this is just nonsense. And yet they actually go along with it. Yeah. And another like extremely counterintuitive feature of Trump's rise, um, and this is going to sound trivial at first, but um, my friend Karen Schwartz says the first thing we normalized about Trump was his hair. And I'd add complexion, his bulk and his figure to that. You talk about an ugly tyrant in the book in the form of Richard. You know, it was less against the rules in those days. In fact, it seemed almost mandatory to discuss appearance of these figures. We, For some reason, if you so much as mention anyone's appearance now, it's um, it's against the rules. But let's talk about physical ugliness and tyrants. I mean, one thing that Shakespeare has a little bit both ways with Richard. On the one hand, he explains Richard's psychopathology by saying, you know, he has a terrible body image. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's been treated badly from childhood by his own mother and by everyone else. They're kind of nauseated by the way he looks. He has neonatal teeth. He has a curved spine. And he himself has incorporated this in his own account of himself. Dogs bark at him in the street. He says uh, he'll never get a woman. Mm -hmm. That culminates in that. And then Shakespeare 
shows, in the beginning of the play, he gets a woman, any woman he wants. That is, it doesn't have to do with, or if it has to do with his, you know, with his body image, he can use that body image in relation to his power to get what he wants. So then the play actually creates a, a little bit of a psychological riddle hmm. for you, which is how, if, if the whole motive for this is he thinks he's not going to ever get a woman, how, when he gets a woman, does he, does he go on? What's the point of this? And if sexual hunger explains this behavior and the, I don't have a two second answer to this, except to say that, or I don't know if Shakespeare has a two second answer. It turns out that, that actually getting, there's no actual code of ugliness. It turns out hmm. Uh, hmm. There, it doesn't matter. It's not what you think it is. It's not about having the ideal body. That's not how you succeed even succeed sexually, let alone succeed in politics. On the contrary, in some sense, Richard III, you see him using the body constantly to, to over, the overcoming of disgust as part of the pleasure of power hmm. or revulsion. That there are, there is a, Shakespeare imagines two different kinds of connections between men and women, one in which the, the woman is actually reciprocally desiring the man. Actually, just be, it's between men and men as well. I mean, right. Shakespeare is not, not solely heterosexist about this. One is in which there's reciprocal desire, and that's one form of love, and you can see it in Romeo and Juliet. But there's another form of love in which there's some kind of revulsion, and mm. in fact, in which the revulsion is part of the man's pleasure. And mm -hmm. that's overwhelmingly the case in Richard III, that he takes pleasure in the disgust that he's arousing, and because he continually conquers it. Wow. I mean, you... whether, that applies, whether that has anything to do with the current situation, I, I'm not inclined to speculate. Because I don't hold myself back from speculation like you do. Um, <laughs> go, go for it. I'm going to suggest that that's at play with a figure like Harvey Weinstein, whose you know descriptions of the descriptions of his uh, misconduct are very much about sort of his display of his own body. Uh, let me well, let me put it a different way, Virginia, which is in a different terms and less in less you know. I mean, I won't, won't characterize them. Let's put it this way: that some people, possibly as a result of the way in which they were. Shakespeare would say is a way in which they were raised as very small children are very good at getting into your head. Hmm. It must be a kind of, of uh, I mean, I think Shakespeare would have thought that it was related to your attempt to get into your mother's head. That's the version that Shakespeare gives in Richard III and then Coriolanus. And it turns out to be a skill that is then developed over a whole lifetime to become what we would call a kind of brain worm. You can't get rid of it no matter how much you try. Part of the tyranny is a weird psychic tyranny where you can't get this, this son of a gun out of your head. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that goes to your, your idea that we're, we're obsessed with Trump. Yeah, Isaac. Well, I was just going to say, I'm so happy you mentioned Coriolanus, and I was so pleased to get to the part of your book about that play, because I love that play, and it's a sort of under-recognized, under as, as much as one can be from a Shakespeare from, that's written by Shakespeare. And I, one of the things that's, that's really fascinating about that, that play is that it actually is a place where politicians stop a tyrant from coming to power without killing him, right? Yes, and, and, and it's true. It, and, and I find that... It's, it's weird, too, because Shakespeare was living in a monarchical system where why does he need to think about elections? And yet he does. He finds his, himself toward the end of his career thinking, what if someone totally inappropriate, totally <laughs> catastrophic was trying to get elected the head of the state? Right. Mm -hmm. How could that be stopped? 
especially if in this case he was a military hero. Yeah. And and in addition, though, one of the things that I'm so happy to see you underline in the book is that those politicians are totally venal and self-interested. You know, their motives for doing it hmm. are are a mixed bag, shall we say. Right. But that, that on some level doesn't matter. What matters actually is their actions and, and, and what they wind up doing rather than their reasons well, what, for doing it. What matters it. actually, curiously enough, and what to me is exciting in a way about Shakespeare's vision in the play is what matters is the insistence by these totally ordinary low-level politicians on procedure, legal procedure. That to say, the whole thing turns. It's a very strange idea for a, a tragedy. The whole tragedy turns on the insistence that they have, that they have to go through the formality. They're not going to suspend the law. They're not going to suspend the procedure. The heroism of bureaucratic procedure is what turns out to stop this monster. And that's totally surprising. I mean, totally surprising at every level, totally surprising for someone writing in the early 17th century, uh, totally surprising for a tragedy. And maybe, I mean, Shakespeare thought, as you know, Shakespeare considered whether assassination would be a plausible route. And he thought, no, a disastrous route, because it actually will hasten the very thing that you think you're going to prevent. But procedure, insisting that you go have to go through everything. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't think it would always work, but he thought that might be a way to actually needle the psychological instability of the tyrant figure sufficiently so that he'd be incapable of, he'd, he'd end this case, and he just has a complete blow up and reveals the full level of his hatred of the democracy that he the system that he hopes to rule. Sometimes I think Trump thinks democracy belongs to Democrats. He just got confused from the, the words are so similar. Um, <laughs> um, well, this was has been fantastic, Stephen. Thanks so much. We could probably talk to you all day. <laughs> if you if if we have an occasion to continue, I would enjoy that. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. But before I skip out, I have to mention our live show. It's May 30th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We'd love to see you there. You can get tickets, slate.com slash live. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.